But dear congregation, I would ask you please to turn now your very prayerful attention to that passage that I read to you in your hearing there, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We arrive this evening in the verse 9, where the apostle says to the Corinthians, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. Well, this evening, arriving at the verse 9, what the Apostle Paul says here is not said in a vacuum. It's not said out of context, but everything here is given by the Spirit of God. And really what Paul is doing is look at the words, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. He's been speaking about unrighteousness. He's been speaking about ungodliness that has been taking place in the church. And this really is a rebuff. This is a strong word. He's reminding them that if this, what has been going on in the church, is the general tenor of the life of the people, whoever they are, doing such things, and their various sins that we've already considered in this epistle, that such will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Look what he says in verse 1. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints. Well, they were doing this at Corinth. We have proof of that, do we not? In verse 7. Now therefore, there is utterly a fault among you because ye go to law one with another. They were doing this. They were practicing that which should never be practiced amongst Christians amongst the family of God. This is not how the family of God behave. In the previous chapter, chapter 5, Paul had to sternly rebuke them because they were tolerating a sin, an unspeakable sin in the church. And that was a man took his own father's wife to himself, more than likely his stepmother. And the father, as we've seen from 2 Corinthians, was still alive, unspeakably wicked. And they were even allowing this man, this young man, to sit at the Lord's table. The church, meanwhile, were also boasting in their preachers, in the eloquence of the preachers, and in many so-called gifts at Corinth. They should never have been boasting. While there was sin going on, we should never boast anyway. Whatever we have, as Paul will tell them, where did you receive it from? Any gift is from God. Now, all their boasting was evil. Boasting in gifts and not paying attention to doctrine, not paying attention to holiness of life. And he has to remind them here, don't you know 
that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, of course, Christians sin, but that is not the general tenor of their lives, is it? Whoever sins as a practice is not born of God, is not a saved person. These words here now from verse 9, as we'll see this evening, are given on the backdrop of a very serious charge which the Apostle Paul gives. In fact, not just one charge, but again, the sins that I've mentioned before, how the churches were going on in various unseemly practices. So there was a serious fault at the church. In the immediate context, we think of these lawsuits. Matters, first of all, were not being settled privately. And this reminds us of what the Lord Jesus says, if thy brother sin against thee, go and tell him his fault. That should always be the first port of call, shouldn't it? We go and we see the person individually. That's love. We don't speak behind their backs. We don't gossip. But we take it to them. If the matter's not dealt with satisfactorily, we take another brother or sister with us. And then we deal with it. If they don't hear, even then, we take it before the church. The church membership. You see, this is a really making very clear that the churches have a membership. Today, it's very sad Many don't believe in membership, but it's so clear from all of the epistles to the churches that there was an ordered, enduring membership, a formal, enduring membership requiring holiness of life. And if there's no holiness of life, you can't be in the church because Almighty God has ordained that his church, literally the word is the word ecclesia, those who are called out, are to be a holy people. They're called out of this world and called to be one body in Christ, members of Christ. So people were not settling matters privately. Neither were they even settling matters in the church. Secondly, it wasn't even going before the church. The church was tolerating the sin and the sinner was sitting at the table. Of course, we're all sinners, but known sin, practicing sin, and then, thirdly, worst of all, they were dishonoring the name of Jesus Christ by taking these things before unbelievers in the law courts and dragging the name, not only of the church, but the name, the blessed name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the mud before the watching world, unspeakable. And all the while, there was this divisiveness in the church, schisms, party spirits, no good. But, worst of all, the real, one of the real problems we could say, the heart of it all, is there was a, a lack of concern for holiness. And this, sadly, is the problem today in so much professed Christianity, a lack of holiness a lack of desire for holiness, a lack of concern for holiness, personal holiness. It's hardly there today in the so-called professing churches. And I'm speaking broadly. 
I'm sure that there are very many faithful churches, but it's sad and it's little wonder that the name of God is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles, even amongst the Jews, because of the way Christians behave today. And he says something. Something is seriously amiss in this church. Look at what he says. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? In this epistle, what he's been doing, as we've said, is he's been reminding them of sin. This is the great problem. And let me just say, to begin with, by way of introduction, Christianity is not just a religious profession, is it? Being a Christian is not just making a profession, but it's about a, a new life. It's about a new creation. It's about being a new creation. Whoever is in Christ is a new creature. And that's how you know whether you, you are a Christian. Are you somebody who is a new creature, who is turning by the grace of God away from sin? Because Christianity is not merely a profession. We're coming up to that time of the year where the world by and large remembers the advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there will be many going to their so-called midnight masses drunk and taking part in supposedly what should be a remembrance of Christ coming into the world. I heard this lately of a man who, who went to an Anglican church and uh, went to one of these so-called midnight masses. I'm not saying you should go to them at all. I think they can be quite profane. But went along, and the people behind him were drunk, professing the name of Christ. Should never be the case. When the Lord saves us, he works righteousness in us because we are a new creature. It's, as we've read here, we're sanctified, we're washed by Christ, but we're also sanctified by Spirit. The Spirit of the living God has come to, to live in us and to, as it were, expel sin from the heart, to deal with it, to mortify sin in the heart. That's the work of the Lord. If you just turn to Romans 8, this is very sad and... Uh, I don't think anybody here is using an ESV, but I'll just point out something that needs to be pointed out every time we come to this passage because these new translations do great despite to the gospel. And uh, here it is, Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. All the modern translations stop right there. They've got a half a verse. Paul, what is he doing? He's bringing two doctrines together, the doctrine of justification by faith in Christ and the doctrine of sanctification. Romans 8 really is all about sanctification, even through trials that we'll have to go through in the Christian life. And the ESV, the NIV, all these IVs, all these really corrupt versions because they are based on corrupt manuscripts, butcher this first verse. Paul is identifying here by the Spirit of God what is a true Christian. 
Not just somebody that is justified by faith. There is now therefore no condemnation to them which in Christ Jesus. But he moves on to sanctification. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. That's the substance of the Christian life. He's justified, but he walks after the spirit of God. Because the spirit has set him free now. Notice the preceding verse. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free. From the law of sin and death. The spirit. Christ has set me free by his spirit. He's emancipated me from a life of sin. For what the law could not do. He's talking there about the Ten Commandments. In that it was weak through the flesh. Could it change me? Couldn't change me? And for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. What did Christ do? For what the law could not do and that was weak through the flesh, God, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, that is, aging flesh, Christ was getting older. That's because he took on a, our nature, as it were, although he had no sin, he was not born a, a full-grown man, was he? But he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He knew what it was to hurt. He knew what it was to hunger. He was tempted in the normative sense. No inward sin, no latent sin in him. But he knew what it was, and yet he was without sin. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. That is the, the sin of his people. He became, as it were, the last Adam and condemned my sin in his flesh, in his body. Peter says he bore our sins in his own body. Why? Look at it. That, verse 4, that the righteousness in, in other words, in order that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. That's the whole reason why Christ has saved his people. So that the righteous law of God might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. You see the tangible effect of the spirit in us? is that So we walk after the righteousness of the law so that it might be fulfilled in us. So we don't walk after the flesh. We're a new creation. He that has begun a good work, it's a good work. It's the work of the Spirit. Changing us. Metamorphosis is the word. Being renewed. In the heart and mind and person. And so you read, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. And so Paul here, coming back to 1 Corinthians 6, he is reminding these Christians, don't you know those who are unrighteous can never enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who are unrighteous as a general tenor of their life, who practice sin, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things have passed away. It doesn't mean to say that sin doesn't raise up its ugly head again. Of course it does. 
but we have to mortify sin, inward corruptions. Now, just think of that name of the Lord Jesus. You know, when the angel came to Mary, she was given that name that he would be called. You just turn there to Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. And there are two names given to him there. One is a name that really is an Old Testament name, but here a very common name, the same as Joshua. And that name Joshua means, or Yeshua, God saves. Matthew 1, 21, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. Why? For, here's the reason, he shall save his people from their sins. Well, we're saved not just from the condemning power of the law, but we're saved from a lifestyle of sin. That's really what it means. From their sins to a new life. He will do something amazing. His spirit will be at work in them. Even the Gentiles will come from afar off. Well, Peter writes, furthermore, he says, Indeed, for as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts, but to the will of God. This is what the Christian lives for. And you notice there also that following on, if you just look at that verse further on in Matthew 1, 21, it says, And he shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, or Yeshua, for he shall save his people from their sins. And then verse 22, Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call, what shall they call him? Well, Emmanuel there we read. Emmanuel. And that is being interpreted what? God with us. It's a quotation there from Isaiah 7 and the verse 14. Emmanuel, God with us. And so it is. We have those tremendous verses. If you just turn for a moment with me there to Isaiah chapter 9. Yes, God with us. Look at Isaiah 9, 6. You know, the Lord Jesus is so easy to prove his divinity and the Trinity from Scripture. It's not a hard thing to do. We read there how the angel said his name should be his name would be Emmanuel, that is God with us. That's Isaiah 6, uh, 7, 14. But here, Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and so on. He is very God who saves his people from their sins. Now the Christian must acknowledge his sin. 
What does John say? If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. And we make God a liar. But I want you to turn to 1 John 3. It says there, many people stumble at this. But here what has been spoken of is the, the tenor of one's life. 1 John 3, 6, Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. That doesn't mean to say the person never sins, because look at what John says earlier in 1 John 1, 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So John is not saying that the Christian doesn't sin, and then he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. He's not saying that what he's talking about here is a general tenor of life. If a person continues to practice, as we will see, we will look at this list here tonight, these things as a general practice of life and does not repent and forsake his sin, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because he doesn't have the spirit of Christ in him. That person is not born again. So you ought to be, we all ought to be very concerned whether we practice these things or that we don't practice these things. Else we shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember what Paul says to the Hebrews, without holiness, my friend, no one shall see the Lord. Be at peace with all men, not just people who you feel like, but with all men, let there be no reason for somebody to be uh, at odds with you. Say what you have to say. Leave it there. But try to be at peace. Don't be a warmonger with people. Have the right spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. Well, it's a good work. We must remember this is something that God's begun. Romans 8, what did we read? He that hath the Spirit of Christ. There's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the Spirit. And Paul says of every Christian, I encourage you to read and study Romans chapter 8, every Christian is endued with the Spirit of God. It's by the Spirit that we cry, Abba, Father. That's the Spirit of intercession and prayer that we pray to God. We say, Father, forgive me in the name of thy Son. Cleanse me. Wash me. Continue to renew my heart. Continue that work by thy Spirit and that Spirit of thy Son. Thy Spirit. So if somebody practices sin, and this is what Paul is saying here, no, you're not. Now, if the Corinthian church were not prepared to listen to him here, you'll have to wipe his hands and move on. You'd have to say this whole church isn't saved if people didn't listen. And it is today. If people don't want to hear about sin, we have to say they're not saved. I often hear in the open air, people saying, you're always preaching about sin. And we've even had people come along to the services here. I don't want to go to that church. You're always talking about sin. 
You're always talking about God's wrath. Well, look at what Paul says here, my friend. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? It's impossible. And yet how many people and churches are deceived? Members of our own families. We're sad to say, isn't it? Think you can just name the name of Christ. Or just go to church. No. Unrighteousness. Well, when God saves us, he works righteousness. Now, of course, we are saved by the righteousness of another. It's what we call imputed righteousness. But there is also, when you are saved, my friend, there is an imparted righteousness. If there is no imparted righteousness, you can be sure of this. There's no spirit of God in you. If there's no righteousness, one is not of the kingdom of heaven. And so this is why Paul has to say to the Corinthians, examine yourselves. And I must, every time I come to preach the word, I must preach to myself, examine my own heart in the light of what I'm going to preach to this congregation every time I step into this pulpit. Because I will be judged more severely. Well, let me just make a few preliminary points to what Paul says here. First of all, their righteous godly life is the Christian's greatest concern. That today, sadly, is not the concern of many a church. Many a church, the greatest concern is programs, 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 and even evangelism. Now, evangelism is a, is a tremendous thing. Of course, if we have no burden for souls, it proves we're not saved. But that is not, and we can see it, it, it just takes a cursory study of all of the epistles and the whole of Scripture, if our primary concern is not what God is concerned about, we are lost people. The primary concern of the Christian's life, the greatest concern of the Christian's life, is righteous, godly living, holy living. Now I must ask you, is that your greatest concern? As it should be my greatest concern concern. In light of all that he's been saying, know ye not. Don't be deceived, he said. Many are deceived at this very point. Many will say, as the Lord Jesus himself warned, many will say, Lord, Lord, we did this in your name. We did that in your name. Don't you know how many people we try to go out and reach. And he will say, I never knew you. You had a very superficial attachment to me. You enjoyed even the ministry. You enjoyed so many things, but holiness was not part of your life. It, it was not your life. That desire to be holy as I am holy. And he will say, I never knew you. 
Why? Because the Lord Jesus, who said, I never knew you, said in his word and by his angel that he will save his people from their sins, from a life of sin. He is God with us in our hearts now. And we don't say, oh, I can't break that sin. Well, of course, in one sense, we do say, I can't break that sin. But we say with Paul, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The person that says, oh, I can't, I've tried. Yeah, they've tried in their own self-styled kind of Christian life. But there was no Christ in them. You see, the Christian, he comes to the end of himself. And he casts himself on the Lord every day and says, Lord, help me. Help me to break that power of sin. Because Paul says, if we, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, we shall live, live now, and live thereafter. We will. He that has begun a good work in you, you know something of that good work in you, my friend? You know something of those days of conquering sin, great exploits over your past life, those old vices that used to cling to you, and now by the power of God you can pray, God deliver me from this sin today. I will not. Paul says, let not sin have dominion over you. The word dominion really has to do with that word bastilio, reign. Sin doesn't reign over the Christian. It, it remains, but it doesn't reign. And that is the marked difference in the Christian life. So firstly, they are to have a concern for holiness in the life and one wonders how many were not saved in the church. And that sometimes is the case. There were those like Demas, remember, who loved the world. And he was no longer walking with Paul. There had been many. Of course, time, I always say time will tell. And that's true with our own selves. So this is why he says, now therefore you work out your own salvation in fear and in trembling, knowing this, that God works in you. He doesn't say, go to despair. He says, you must know that God works in you. So call upon God. If you know he works in you, call upon God. And by the Spirit of God, overcome that sin. To each of those epistles, to the churches in the book of the Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, he says, he that overcometh shall inherit. But here... Do you not know that those who are unrighteous, that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Secondly, it's a warning. You see, we should have a concern, but it's a warning. You remember when the Lord Jesus approached the disciples, he said, fear not, those who are able to cast body into the, to destroy body. But he said, fear him. 
who was able to cast both body and soul into hell. He was talking to the disciples. Now, of course, the disciples will always heed the warning. And they are kept by the warnings. But the careless sinner could care less. You see, because as we're thinking Lord's Day evening, he's got blurred vision. He doesn't understand. He's still blinded by this world. Blinded by empty religion. So it's a warning, secondly. But also, what Paul does here, it's quite magnificent. As we move on, it's, it's a really tender thing that he does here. He lists at, at least ten terrible sins. And some have tried to structure them in various ways. I'm not so sure that there is a, a very clear structure, but they are heinous sins, terrible sins, that we've all, one degree or another, whether in the heart or whether in the flesh, committed these things, no doubt. And they cover, really, the Ten Commandments, we could say, in many respects. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators nor idolaters. What is an idol? Anything that we put before God. Not just making a little image, my friend. But putting something, if it's more precious to you than God, if you wouldn't give it up for God, it's an idol. It's an idol. It can be anything. If you are holding on to that thing with your whole dear life, it's your idol. And God will not have any rivals. He'll not have any idols. See, idols are in the heart. We're, our hearts, as one has said of old, are idol-making factories, constantly making them, because by nature we put everything before God, don't we? But the new nature has God supreme on the heart. Neither fornicators, that could be any kind of uncleanness, sexual impurity, spiritual impurity, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate. Effeminacy is a sin. It is a sin. Men, we are to be men. And women are to be women. We are to have the proper place. There is, sadly today, masculinity amongst women. And this whole woman's lib, woman's right movement, it's, it's, it's anti-biblical. It's anti-Christian. And a woman will never find a fulfillment in trying to be a man. In fact, let me say she's aiming too low. We're different. We're made differently. Of course, we're made equal, but we're made to complement one another. Man's meant to be a man. A woman must live up to that glory which God has given her to be a woman. And it is her glory to honor the husband. It's fulfillment of life. Woman will never be satisfied if she is trying to, you know, have that high career and be that 
equal to the man. That's, that's not what she is in that sense, in that wrong sense. Yes, we are made both in the image of God, but with different services one to another. And the husband is to lead and to be head over the family. And the wife is to, we're told, to reverence her husband and to honor him and to give due respect. He's not a bully, he's not a tyrant. The woman at the same time is to realize that God has made her to be a helpmeet for the man. Nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. We see that today. It's so prevalent, isn't it? Today. We wouldn't dare talk about there's no such thing, my friend, as a gay Christian. I don't even like to say these things to taint our meetings. But we hear it so frequently today. The state church is utterly perverse with these things. It's unspeakable. It has been. The church of Rome has been rife for centuries with this sin. It's not just the church of Rome. It's the Methodist church. It's the Broad Road Baptist church today. Mainstream Baptist church, but this is not how the Reformed faith is to be. It's a Reformed life, isn't it, that we're to live. Nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners. Some of these Corinthians here were extortioners, extorting money. They were defrauding others. But you can defraud in many ways. You can defraud the young girl at the checkout at Tesco. She's given you too much money back. At the end of the day, she has to give an account. You know where the money is. You've not given it back. God's remembered. No, you're not. But the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. What about those who steal from God? There's one day a week that God has given. And it's called rightly the Lord's Day. You don't know where it is? The book of the Revelation, chapter 1. Do we steal from God his day? What about our tithes? Look, read the book of Malachi. You have robbed me, says God. People rob God. What about early morning? You rise up. Every day really is God's day, isn't it? If we are the Lord's, do you pray? What about you? You say, well, my life's my own. But you're not a Christian. Because we're told here, no, you're not. But you're not your own. You were bought at a price. If you are your own, you weren't bought. Or the Spirit of God has not saved you yet. When you are born again, you say, I am the Lord's. And he is mine. 
My beloved is mine, and I am his, and I want to serve him. After all that he's done for me, save me from this wretched world. My friend, there are many people that are professed Christians that desecrate the Lord's Day, that desecrate the Sabbath. And I'm not being legalistic. We can easily prove, Hebrews 4, 9, that there remaineth the Sabbath keeping for the Lord's people. And yet Christians will, as it were, get up on their hind legs, so-called Christians, say, this is my Christian liberty to do what I want. Christ has saved me. I, I'm not under the law, they say. But Paul says, Romans 3.31, do we make void the law through the coming of faith? He said, God forbid. Nay, rather we establish the law. Why call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. He is like the man which built a house and digged deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood, or did he say, when the flood came up, arose and the stream beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. He says that the person on the rock is not simply the person that sings on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground. No, he says that the person on the rock hears my word and does it. Don't be deceived. Many know the hymns, but many are unrighteous. What is righteousness? Righteousness is conformity to the law. Unrighteousness is non-conformity to the law. Now, why do we do all of this? Do we do it out of legalism? No. Out of love. That's really the, that's at the heart of all of this, isn't it? It's out of, it's out of love. When Paul gets to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, what does he do? He spent an entire 11 chapters explaining what God for, has done for his people in Christ Jesus. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, By the tender mercies of God, now offer up yourselves as living sacrifices. After all that he's done, now offer you up yourself as a living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing, not to yourself, but to God, which is your reasonable service. Your whole life, my whole life, must be to God. Listen to the psalmist, he says, in that Psalm 119 that we sang, Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes, and I shall keep it to the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep thy law. I shall observe it with my whole heart. Why? Because he wants to. Because he loves the Lord. Because the Lord heard his cry. Because the Lord saved him, and the Lord set his feet upon a rock, which is Christ. And he knows he's forgiven and saved by God's grace. You see, when we come to listen, the psalmist says, Teach me thy law. 
Not that I just have a whole sack full of knowledge in my head, but that I will walk in loving obedience, that it will be with a view to obedience to thy law, Lord. That's the reason I want to hear, not just to, to learn. And what kind of obedience is it? As, as I said, it's love, isn't it? It's not a slavish fear. It's not a, a fear that is servile. But it's, how can I dishonor God who has been so kind to me now? The psalmist says, there's mercy with the Lord that he might be feared. A true and proper filial fear. That one of high respect and honor for the Lord. As I said, when Paul gets to Romans 12.1, he says, Now, by the tender mercies of God, offer up yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing unto the Lord. Friend, is this your life? It's a good question to ask. And look at what else he does. He reminds these Corinthians, this is what you were. You used to live like the worldling. He covers all of these sins here. Even those who were fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, abusers of themselves with mankind, thieves, you used to steal, used to covet, neither drunkards, or you were drunk, you won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. Nor revilers, you revile other people, you're constantly bad-mouthing other people, you're constantly blaming other people for all the faults in your life. That's the society of this world. People go to the psychiatrist today, and they tell the psychiatrist everything. And the psychiatrist quite happily says, oh, well, it's not your fault, really. It's your husband, it's your wife, it's your children, it's your upbringing. You need to feel good about yourself. That's the problem. We have too high view of ourselves, friends. We've all sinned. I'm sure others have sinned against us. But you know, we have a terrible, terrible habit of quite easily blaming our faults on other people. We've all had difficult pasts, but that never excuses your sin. Never. People will go to hell excusing their sins. Really, they will, but not the Christian. You look on his life, although it's a life full of sin of the past, you'll say, there's so many things I should have done. Who am I to speak? And he'll walk humbly. Well, these people will not inherit, revile us, will not inherit, nor covetous. You know, you can be a very poor person and still be covetous. You can have nothing. You covet somebody's house. 
You should just be thankful you're alive. Your heart's beating. God hasn't swept you to hell. Be thankful if you're saved. We hear of humbling stories of people that have been saved that have nothing. Just thankful to be saved. A bit of bread on the table and some water. No, what we have is from God. Neither extortionists shall enter or inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, and such were some of you. Now you who are saved, he's saying, remember this was your life. Stop and think, do you want to go back to it? This is what he's reminding them. This is what you were. And if you continue on in your sin, and it's true even the Christian as he backslides, he can, sadly, he's sliding back to the old self, isn't he? Do you, do you really want to go back to this? You, you were that. Just think of what you were five, ten, maybe even two years ago. And where you are now. And did you seek God? No. He sought you. When you were lost and you were in the thick of it. You were in your sin. You were in a helpless state. And he quickened your spirit and he set your feet upon the rock. What does he say? That you are justified. My friends, justification is the work of God. It's not the work of man. Let me just say that. First of all, we have it here. Washed, sanctified, justified. When were we washed? When Christ shed his blood, my friends. And then even when we confessed our sins, God was faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because Christ died for those sins. And we were washed. And God, as it were, washed our lives and cleansed us. And you are sanctified. That is, God is continuing to bring you on and to progress you on in the sanctified life. And that he that has begun a good work in you, it's a good work, it's the best work, it's a perfect work. It's a gracious and a very patient work. He's sanctified you and you're justified. You stand as a justified sinner in his sight. Now, how can you go back to that? Ought you not to not be thankful? In effect, he's saying, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. It's all the work of God, isn't it? What a reminder for these Corinthians. All that God has done for you. Now remember, don't go back to these practices. Don't have bitterness towards your brothers. They were taking cheap, easy shots at one another. In the church, no, no. That was your former life. And that's not how God's people behave now. There was adultery. The house of God is not a place of adultery. We Christian men, we ought to be able to trust other men around our wives. And the same for wives. 
You ought to be able to trust other women around your husbands. It's not a place of dishonor. It's a place of honor. Such were some of you. Do you really want God's house to be like that? I don't want God's house to be like that. I don't want my life to be like that. And now he moves to this area, and we must close. All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. He's not saying here sin is lawful. Let's understand that first of all. He says there's a lot of things you can do in the Christian life that are perfectly legitimate and lawful. But not everything is expedient. How does the Christian live? He lives the expedient life for the glory of Christ. He does everything with that one aim. To be expedient for the honor of one who has loved me beyond all my human conception. All I can fathom. He has loved me. And I must use all that I have for the glory of that precious name. Even if it means being defrauded by another brother. That I would never want Christ's name to be dragged in the law courts. And dishonored. And doing all that I can to win my fellow brother in the Lord and to show a better way. When he was reviled, he reviled not. When somebody, let me ask you, corrects you, what kind of a spirit do you and I have? Do we get all hot under the collar? Or do we bear it gently? Long-suffering. That's one of the spirits of a Christian, isn't it? Gentleness, kindness. Now, we don't all do these things perfectly. Far be it. But that should be our aim. If that is not our aim, we're not aiming at Christ. We're aiming at pleasing ourselves. But we must aim at pleasing him who loved us. That's pleasing. Peter says, seeing ye have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. The word quickened us, and by the Spirit we were given life. The word came, and the word came not in word only, but in power and in demonstration of the Spirit of God, and we were made anew. And you know what? That word comes new to us every time we come to it. It's not old. The word speaks, and it continues to sanctify. May God be pleased with a sanctified people as we live to the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How can we go back to the old life? Let us just stop and think what we once were. Thank God 
We're not what we were, but we are what we are now by the grace of God. Let us pursue Christ all the more.